Thanks, Stephen. Um, we're reading Psalm 85, so if you have one of our Bibles, that's on page 421. This is what we read. You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Uh, Well, good morning. It's uh, lovely to see you again. Um, It's always gratifying when you're here as a visiting preacher on a multi-week series to see people back on the second week. So uh, great to see you again. Uh, As Stephen said, my name's Geoffrey Lynn. I'm one of the ministers, uh, particularly at Holy Holy Trinity in the city, and it's great to be here with you over these weeks. Uh, You'll have noticed I've picked up a cold in the intervening weeks, so I will stop at different points just to take a sip of water and hopefully get through today. Uh, We're looking at Psalm 85, and I'll ask you to have that open in front of you, please. And also, if you take out the handout on the inside of your leaflet, you'll find this little insert. There's both the Bible passage printed on the front and then on the back an outline of what I'm going to cover. Uh, We're looking at these uh, three Psalms, Psalms 84, 85, and next week, 86. Uh, And as I said last week, uh, the key when it comes to reading the Psalms is to remember that first and foremost, they describe what God is like, his character, how good he is, how wonderful he is. Uh, that first and foremost, that's what we're to take away from them, not how we're to respond, although that will come in due course. And so this week, we're going to do what we did last week and just spend a few moments uh, looking at the psalm in three different ways. Firstly, what it says about God, Psalm 85 says about God. Secondly, how it points us towards Jesus, who is the greatest and the most complete revelation of God. And then thirdly, what it means for us today. Uh, This week's psalm, uh, there are three parts to it, and you can see from the way in which I've laid it out on your handout uh, that uh, the parts are of increasing length, as if, uh, you might say, the songwriters, the sons of Korah, had more and more to say as they went on through their song. I've divided into three parts. Uh, You'll see what they're listed there. Firstly, the good old days, verses 1 through 3, the good old days. Uh, You showed favour to your land, O Lord, you restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Uh, Most epic songs begin with a backstory. They begin with an event in the past that helps explain the present and gives hope for the future. In the case of the sons of Korah in Psalm 85, they look back at a time when God had shown favour to his people, when he had restored their fortunes. Uh, The reference there to Jacob is just a different way of of saying Israel. This is uh, set in the Old Testament. Uh, We don't know the exact episode. Uh, It's possible that it's referring to a time where there was a famine in the land and God had intervened to provide food for them. 
It's possible that actually it's uh, looking back to the time when Israel was sent into exile by Babylon and God brought them back again. We don't actually know. But in a sense, not knowing what the event is that the sons of Korah refer to doesn't really make a difference. Not knowing the exact event means that all of us, in a sense, can relate to it. Because the first stanza is all about a simple conviction. We are sinful to the core, we are sinful to the core, and God's wrath and anger must follow our iniquity. And yet, God is a God who forgives. And when he does, there is nothing more wonderful than being confronted by your sin and being forgiven. Psalm 85 opens with a reminder that to speak truthfully about God, therefore, means resisting the temptation to be selective or one-sided when we describe who our God is. We must tell of all that he is like. He hates sin. He cannot stand iniquity. And he forgives. And he can turn away his fierce anger. If we don't speak of his wrath, people will have no reason to listen to him. But if we don't speak of his forgiveness, sinners will have no reason to come to him. Stanza one, the good old days. Stanza two. Here we go again. Here we go again. In the second part of the song, uh, the sons of Korah describe what's going on in their current situation, which sounds eerily like the past. Pick it up in verse 4. Restore us again, O God our Saviour. Put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Well, once again, we don't know why the song's been written. We don't know what happened in the past. We don't know what's going on now. But it's clear from God's response, uh, there you see in those verses, his displeasure, his anger is referred to twice, that in some way his people have sinned again. Despite what God has done for him in the past, They have turned away from him again. And so they need God to do for them again what he's done for them before. They need him to restore them, to revive them, to show them his unfailing love, to grant his salvation. Of course, God's people cannot bargain with God. They cannot appease God. They cannot right their own wrongs. They cannot atone for their sins. Their only hope is that God might forgive them of his own accord because of what he is like, as if it's in his very nature and in his character to forgive. We know that to be true from our own experience, I think. If you've offended someone, uh, then... No matter, how, no matter what you do, you cannot force someone to forgive you. They must choose to do so. And unless and until they do, nothing can fully heal your relationship. Uh, perhaps that's the reason why 
stanzas one and stanzas two in this song are directly addressed to God. You notice that, didn't you, throughout? You, 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 you. It keeps coming through over and over again. It's as if the sons of Korah are reminding God of his nature. Reminding God of what he is like. And not that God forgets, of course. But it's the right opening, isn't it? If you come to someone wanting forgiveness, to remind them that actually they are a person who loves to forgive. Uh, That leads, therefore, of course, into the third stanza, stanza three, and their hope and conviction that God might do just that. And so, point three, our only hope, verses 8 through 13. Let me read this last section of the psalm. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Well, so far in the the song, uh, we've seen what God has done for his people in the past. We've seen how his people need him to intervene even now. Verse 8, in many ways, is the turning point. It's the key to the whole psalm. Look at it with me, verse 8. Verse 8, I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to his folly. I say that verse 8 is key because it's the only time in the whole song that the sons of Korah actually do something. The rest of the psalm is all about what God does and what God is like. But in verse 8, the sons of Korah do something. Do you notice what it is? They listen. They listen. And so in a sense, actually, they don't really do anything, but they're committed to hearing. Because listening is the very opposite of doing. It's passive. It's not active. To listen means to trust in God's promise, not try to somehow earn his favour. Remember the key to the Psalms? What God is like, not what we are to do. Even now you see that conviction coming through. The sons of Korah say they will listen to what God promises. And the picture that stanza three goes on to paint is even more extravagant than the mere forgiveness of sins. See, stanzas one and two talked about God's forgiveness, both in the past and how it's needed now. But verse eight, he promises peace to his people. He promises peace to his people. Uh, the word peace um, is one that you might recognise. Uh, it's, it's a Jewish word that still gets used in English, actually. The word is shalom, uh, the word for peace. It means much more than the absence of hostility or conflict or the end of fighting. It means the full and complete reconciliation, a restoration of relationships that have been broken but are now healed as if they had never been ruptured at all. It means that by the time we come to verse 9, that God's salvation is so much more than simply a begrudging, okay, I forgive you through gritted teeth. 
God's salvation is so much greater than that. And the measure of it, uh, verse 9, is that His glory may dwell in our land. His glory may dwell in our land. I I think there's perhaps no better description of a complete forgiveness uh, than to invite someone with whom once you are in conflict to come dwell with you, to live with you, to be welcome in your home. There's the sign that what was broken has been remade whole again. Uh, And that leads, therefore, into the rest of the psalm, verses 10 through 13, with the lovely, extravagant imagery that we see there. Uh, Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth. Righteousness looks down from heaven. Uh, When I read through this psalm with some of the staff I work with, um, uh, well, I, I should say one of the staff just giggled as they thought about the words that are used here. Because they're lovely, aren't they? Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. I don't know what springs to mind for you, but I think of those ideas, love and faithfulness meeting, righteousness and peace kissing each other. And here's what I thought of anyway. I thought of um, some continental Europeans, you know, meeting on the boulevard, very expressive and hair kissing and saying, we should have coffee sometime. And It's a lovely picture, isn't it? It's overwhelming almost. Verse 11, faithfulness springs forth from the earth. As well, boo, surprise, faithfulness, I'm here. And then righteousness looks down from heaven. That sense that wherever you go, you see God's righteousness everywhere. These are descriptions of love, faithfulness, righteousness, righteousness that are overflowing in abundance. These are powerful, evocative descriptions of what life is like in a community where God's glory dwells. Because they're qualities that first and foremost emanate from God. They are descriptions of his character. What does Psalm 85 tell us about God? It says that his past action gives us confidence for how he will act in the future. And that shapes how we're to live now. It tells us that his forgiveness changes everything. Well, point two on your handout. How does Psalm 85 point us to Jesus? Because as I've been saying throughout these Psalms, if the key to the Psalms is what they tell us about God, then ultimately they ought to tell us about what God's Son, God in the flesh, is like. Let me say a couple of things about this. Uh, If the sons of Korah in Psalm 85 had hope based on what God had done for them in the past, uh, how much more confident are we? We who look back and see what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus, how much more confident are we about what God will do for us in the future? You might have noticed that as Psalm 85 went along, one of the things it never did was explain how God could forgive sins. Rather, the focus of Psalm 85 was only that we needed him to forgive us and that he promises to do so. But the question of how he does so was never explained. What does happen with the sin that we need God to forgive? Because, of course, God cannot ignore our sin 
If we were to do so, that would be unjust. God could not be called righteous as he is three times in the third stanza alone. God cannot ignore sin. He must deal with it. He must condemn it before it can be forgiven. That, of course, is where the full glory of the cross of the Lord Jesus is revealed. I printed for you there on your handout, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Here, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on what Jesus accomplished at the cross, also describes how he does his work. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is often described as the great exchange. And you can see that, uh, perhaps if you flip over your handout, I've given you, each week I thought I'd give you a picture or an image. This one I struggled with this week, so I came up with a diagram that I've just shamelessly ripped off the internet, obviously, uh, which depicts what goes on in 2 Corinthians 5, that the one who has no sin takes our sin and the exchange is that he gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 is a reminder that someone must bear sin. Someone must bear the consequence of sin. It's either us or it's another. And thanks be to God that at the cross, Jesus takes our sin onto himself and in return, he exchanges for us his righteousness. Or, or actually, to be more accurate, at the cross, in Jesus, God takes our sin not so much onto himself, but into himself. That is, the picture is of self-absorption. I say that because in the end, our sin is first and foremost against God. And we know that only the victim has the right to absorb the cost and grant forgiveness. You see that when um, you witness the outrage from victims' families when a presidential pardon is granted? The victims' families say, they have no right to grant that. What the cross demonstrates is that in the end, if our sin is first and foremost against God, then he is the one offended, which means he is the one alone who can forgive. Can you see how much better off you and I are than the sons of Korah? They stand in their time, confronted with some sin that their people have committed, hoping for God's forgiveness, certain that he'll grant it because of what he's done in the past, but they never know how that's possible. You and I, some 2,000 years after Christ, we look back and see that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And that means that, in the end, 
the transformation in us will be even greater. I said each week that I'd try and come up with a picture or an image to help you remember what the passage has been about. Uh, And there's a diagram there, but in case that doesn't work for you, I thought instead of a visual image this week, maybe a, if there's such a thing, a verbal one or a musical image might work. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to sing. We're going to sing it in a moment. Here's the image. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of my guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. Because for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. What Psalm 85 says about God, how Psalm 85 points us to Jesus, finally then, what Psalm 85 says about us today. If you look on your handout near the bottom, I printed a question. Here's where I want to finish our time. Here's the question. Uh, If Jesus has taken all of our sins, why do we continue to confess? If Jesus has taken all of our sins, why do we continue to confess? This might not be a question that's ever troubled you, but it does for some of us. So let me try and answer the question. The reason we confess even though Jesus has taken all of our sins, is not because we're terrified that if we don't confess all of our sins that somehow they won't be forgiven. I want to say that because uh, this is the impossibility of the Roman Catholic confessional. If this is your background, if this is what you've grown up in, the sense that uh, you must confess all your sins lest they remain unforgiven... Uh, I want to say just how impossible that is uh, because, well, actually, we're oblivious to most of the harm that we cause. Uh, It's sad but true and in many ways a small mercy. I suspect that if we were fully aware of just how devastating our sin was on the lives of others, let alone on God God himself, we'd be overcome with despair. If God required us to list and name every sin that we'd ever, ever done and confess it before we were forgiven, I think it would paint God in the end in a viciously mean light. Kind of like a nasty, small-minded, nitpicky pedant. You know, he's just waiting to catch us out for the tiniest little infringement. When surely our maker can tell the orientation and desire of our heart. So if Jesus has taken all our sins, why do we continue to confess? Well, I think the answer in the end is because repentance is necessary in every relationship for its ongoing health. Repentance is necessary in every relationship for its ongoing health. Or to put it, Slightly more bluntly, has saying sorry ever made things worse? 
Uh, most of you know that I'm married. Uh, I've been married to Wendy for 18 years now. And so 18 years ago, uh, my wife stood before family, friends, before God himself and promised to love me unconditionally. I did as well. That, this is my illustration I'm giving. She promised to love me unconditionally. If there ever comes a day where I think that means that I have no need to apologise... My marriage will never be anything more than cordial. And I'll never experience the depth of relationship which Psalm 85 imagines, where love and faithfulness meet, where righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's the case with my human relationships. How much more so with God? Brothers and sisters, in the end, we continue to repent. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Of course, the biggest obstacle to repentance, I'm not sure about you, but for me, the biggest obstacle to my repentance is pride. It's pride. I like to tell myself that I've reached a point where I don't sin. It does say I have a problem with lying, but that's a different matter. Why is it, do you think, that others thinking more highly of me than they ought matters more to me than the unparalleled relief which comes from asking for forgiveness from someone who has already said they'll give it? Is this not an example of how the truth ought set us free? It brings us to those wonderful words of comfort that are given to Christians in 1 John chapter 1, which I printed at the bottom of your handout, and here we'll conclude. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let me read those words again. Just let them linger for a moment. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let me be clear here. John is not saying that our sins are still to be forgiven in the future as if they're dependent on our confession. That was completed at the the cross of Christ. We do not ever need to worry or doubt that. Our forgiveness has been won. Rather, I think, 1 John 1 is a reminder that God's work of purification is not yet complete. Which, of course, we know from our own experience. And so just like the sons of Korah in Psalm 85, we live looking forward in hope. Although this is important, notice who does the purifying. Verse 9, we don't purify ourselves. It's not us who do the work. It's God who does. God who is faithful and just 
it's God who will finish his work because, for one last time, what God is like matters far more than anything we can do. I wonder if, perhaps in the week ahead, you might think about how, as you speak with, interact with, email, talk with your friends, your family, your classmates, your workmates who don't know Jesus. I wonder how it is that you might be able to offer um, this comfort that we have in the gospel. You see, our world, I think, to offer even a glimmer of hope, our world must deny that people are sinful. Our world must pretend that people are at heart are inherently good. Ironic, isn't it? Atheists accuse Christians of believing in fairy tales. Whereas Christians can both confess the reality of our sin without being overwhelmed and speak of God's promise of complete forgiveness for all who will listen to him. I think in our cynical fake news world that our friends want to hear truth being spoken. Not in judgment, as if we claim to be any better than them, but with deep compassion and with great concern. You join me in praying? Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, in the Lord Jesus, you have taken our sins onto yourself and so you've taken them away. Uh, We praise you for the hope that we have that you will finish your work of purifying us, making us more and more like Christ. We ask that sometime, perhaps in this week ahead, you might give us opportunity and courage to be able to speak both of the reality of our sin and our deep conviction of your good and faithful forgiveness. Amen.